I've been constantly reeling from one moment of deja vu to another for the last few years, actually. The one that really got me going was the QAnon shaman, you know, marching around in the House of Representatives. The chamber invasion of the 6th of January was an extraordinary event, which was full of echoes of 1848. And I thought part of it was the theatricality, the fact that these people are performing a kind of larger than life role, you know, freedom, constitution, man, you know, this kind of thing. And on the other hand, serious insurrectionary intent, fury about a lost election, the repudiation of the whole electoral process, the repudiation of the chamber. It was thick with memories of 1848. You couldn't help thinking of it because on the 15th of May, 1848, a group of protesters broke in, in a very similar fashion, broke into the Chamber of Deputies and said, this chamber is going to be shut down, we're deposing it, we're creating a new government, a new radical government, and so on and so forth. That was a protest from the left. That was people on the left who were angry because the elections had not produced the outcome they wanted, and they were now saying universal suffrage is a lie. And that's exactly what people of the right were saying in January 2021. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name is Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor and your host. And this week we delve into the mid 19th century. And to do that, we're with an esteemed guest, Sir Christopher Clark, Australian historian and Regis professor at Cambridge Uni. So we've got a real live Oxbridge Don on the show. As you've heard at the top there, he's talking about 1848, the tumultuous year in history and one that has many echoes today, not least with the storming of the Chamber of the National Assembly of France on the 15th of May 1848, which is eerily similar to that of the 6th of January 2021 in support of Donald Trump. You may not be familiar with 1848, but it was the year of revolution which had global ramifications, so we'll talk about that. There wasn't much revolution going on in Britain, but that's not because we're all against that sort of thing here and would much rather a quiet life with a nice cup of tea and feet up watching the cricket with newspaper to hand. If only that were so. So Christopher Clark explains why, as well as the fact that Switzerland can claim to be one of the first countries to revolt. Who would have thought it? Anyway, in the meantime, I've got plenty more content upcoming, including a chat about perhaps Britain's greatest ever general, Bill Slim. Have you heard of him? Also, the Film Club continues on the anniversary of Dunkirk with Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. And Tom Holland joins me to talk about Rome as a superpower in the first century AD. And I'm sure we'll talk about plenty of other things, including my particular bugbear, the use of CE and BCE in place of AD and BC. Perhaps that's a bit niche, though. Please do rate and review and do tell your friends. In the meantime, I'll hand you over to me talking to Christopher Clark on 1848, the year of revolution. Christopher Clark, welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. It is a great pleasure to have you on. Oliver, thank you very much. You are a hugely distinguished historian and have written this fantastically interesting new book on the revolutionary period of 18 or revolutionary year of 1848. And I've been reading this and I have to be honest, I'm not an expert by any means on this subject and although actually you know now I've read yours I'm beginning to feel like I'm getting there but I wanted to start by asking you what is 1848 I mean and what I mean by that is 
to me, this was a year. This was a year when you had countries, states, uh, city states all over mainland Europe went through this hugely tumultuous period of revolution, counter-revolution, and the ripple effects were felt all over the world. And that's 1848. So my first question really is, what is 1848? Well, you've already described it pretty well yourself, it seems to me. I mean, what's interesting about 1848, and also incidentally what's unique about it, is, it's, it's, is that it's the only truly European Revolution that there's ever been. The French Revolution is called the French Revolution for a very good reason, although its effects, of course, are profound and, and widespread. Um, it is a revolution that really starts off in France. The, uh, the Commune, this revolution in Paris, remains very much a French affair. So does the Revolution of 1830, of July 1830, which does leap over into sort of sympathy revolutions in Belgium and in a few Italian cities and uh, elsewhere. Uh, but doesn't get anything like the kind of European scale of cascading tumults that you see in 1848. And finally, the Russian revolutions of, 18, of 1905 and 1917, they too are very much Russian in their inception. In 1848, by contrast, you see this, uh, it's a bit like brush fires. You know, it's, a, it's a, a revolution which cascades across the entire continent from Palermo in Sicily to Naples to Paris to Vienna to Berlin. Uh, where it starts is really still a matter of controversy. You could say it starts in Paris. The Parisian Revolution of February 1848 was important. But when that happened, the Sicilian Revolution in Palermo was already underway. It had broken out in January, on the 12th of January. So it was already going. Um, and even before that, we have a, a sort of revolution come civil war that breaks out in the previous year, in the autumn of the previous year, 1847, in Switzerland, which actually completely transforms the Swiss state. So. In some ways, you could say it's the Swiss who started it. The Swiss being, you know, curiously, since we think of Switzerland now as a sort of island of, you know, banking, clock-making, peaceniks, you know, uh, in those days, Switzerland was the most unstable country in the whole of Europe. And, um, and it demonstrated this by experiencing this, you know, very tumultuous period of revolution and, and, and upheaval and civil war in 1847. And that's, in a way, what starts the avalanche going. Well, I suppose, you know, things are serious when the Swiss get in on the act. Absolutely. Um, what was the world of 1847 then? To my mind, 1848 was when we see the dawn of modern states that we see today. Although I might be wrong, I can see your face. I'm getting it. Yeah, but what is the world of 1847? I know we've, is it Ancien Regime? I know we've had the French Revolution in 1789, but what is the world of 1847? Really what what is the Europe of pre eighteen forty eight? What is the Europe before the revolution? It's a really important question to ask because it doesn't actually look very much like our Europe. I mean, it's full of all sorts of oddities and, and anomalies that you know um, would strike us as as bizarre if you didn't know this about the nineteenth century and you just looked at this map. Uh, the first thing you'd notice is there's there's no Poland. Poland has just completely disappeared. It was swallowed up in the eighteenth century and in the, a sequence of partitions, meaning sort of concentric invasions from its three neighboring states, Russia, Austria, and Prussia. So it's not even anywhere on the map. Um, it's just the Poles are a nation who live under occupation, effectively, most of them in Russia, but also a substantial number in Austria and Prussia. And um, there's no Italy. Instead of that, there's there's five independent Italian states, sovereign Italian states, including one with a bizarre name, the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies, which combines Sicily and the mainland around Naples. Then there's the Papal States, whose capital city is Rome, which are run by the Pope. 
So that's a state that has no contemporary analog, except of course the Vatican City, which is a surviving lump of what was once the Papal States, but that was once quite an important Central European state. Then you had the Grand Duchies of Parma, Modena, Lucca, which then is absorbed into to another state in 1847. Uh, and in the north, you have the most important Italian state, one that plays a very active role in 1848, the state of Piedmont. But it's really not a state, it's a province of a larger kingdom called the Kingdom of Sardinia, which is run by the House of Savoy. So it includes bits of France, what we now call Savoy in France. Uh, it includes the island of Sardinia, after which the, the kingdom is named. And Piedmont is this large Italian um, territory in the northeast of Italy. And in addition to that, you have the two Austrian-occupied areas, Lombardy, capital city Milan, and Venetia, capital city Venice, both under Austrian control and, and run as a sort of joint Lombardo-Venetian kingdom from Vienna. So Italy doesn't look anything like today's unified Italy. And Germany is divided into 39 states. I'm not going to go through and list them. We could spend quite a long time doing that. But I mean, it's a radically different map. It's full of confusions for the, for the unwary. So this revolutionary year of 1848, I don't think many of us really know about it. It's not taught at school, I don't think. I mean, maybe A-level, but even then, I, I, that's unlikely. Why do you think that is? Well, the problem is that we're, we're addicted to the 20th century. The 20th century is like heroin and we're like addicts. You know, and if you think about how people respond to crises in the present, they always look to 20th century analogies. Is Putin Hitler? Is if you, if you don't support the, the Ukraine in its struggle against Russia, are you committing the sins of appeasement? Are you, as it were, retracing the path of Chamberlain, who of course wasn't really the appeaser some people claim he was, um, but we'll leave that to one side. You know, um, it's this, this kind of addiction to 20th century analogies. The Russians do the same thing when they claim that the Ukrainians are fascists or neo-Nazis or Banderovtsi, followers of Bandera, 20th century ultra-rightist um, Ukrainian nationalist leader. So, you know, we're addicted to these 20th century anal analogies because they produce emotions, they generate emotions, but they're actually not very useful or relevant. And in some ways, what I think is happening is that the Alp of the 20th century, which had completely blocked our vision of the 19th century, is now shrinking uh, in our awareness. And we're becoming, I think, well, this is the moment to turn back and look at the deeper histories of our present, histories that extend back into the century before. And in some ways, if you think about 1848 as a moment in history and 2023 as another moment in history, they have something in common, namely that they're like bookends at opposite ends of the same thing. The 1848ers, the people of the mid 19th century, were about to enter something that we're in the business of leaving. What they were about to enter was what we could call high modernity. They were about to experience the effects of massive industrialization on the most titanic scale, transforming the appearance of landscapes, urban spaces, and so on. They're about to experience the rise of large and powerful political parties with the power to discipline their members. Uh, and ultimately, of course, in the 20th century, the most potent expression of this phenomenon would be the totalitarian political party, the National Socialist Party, the Communist Party, the Fascist Party uh, of Italy, and so on, or for that matter, the, um, the party founded by Franco, the sort of composite right-wing party of Franco's authoritarian regime. And it was, of course, the time of the rise of the great national newspapers. That all happened after 1848, the national radio audience, the television audience. All of that is breaking up now because of the social media, because we don't read 
papers anymore. There's a, a few fewer and fewer people read papers. There's a kind of crisis of print journalism going on. The social media have meant that more and more of us get more and more of our information from channels that are not national television broadcasters, but, you know, other sources which are private, you know, extremely multifarious and diverse and so on. So all of that is breaking down again, and we're returning to the kind of multifarious, multipolar and rather confusing world of the mid-19th century. So in some ways, in a way, we're, we're, we're swimming back into the world that they took for granted. And that, I think, is creating a new sense of affinity. You know, our relationship with the past is not linear. It's true that if we look at a timeline, one of those Wikipedia timelines, the past is getting further and further away. If you look at a calendar too, it just is getting further and further away in a linear fashion. And every day, it's one day further away. I mean, this is not rocket science. But our relationship with the past isn't really like that, neither in regard to our personal stories, nor in regard to history more generally. It seems to me that the past, a, a past, that seemed to be kind of packed away and mothballed and irrelevant can suddenly spring back into focus, can suddenly speak to us in a very intimate way. And I think that the, that's what's happening now with the 19th century. All sorts of things from the 19th century are back in our present. I mean, if you think about the, the tensions around the Eastern Mediterranean the, or, or the squabbling over Libya between Egypt and Turkey, I mean, that looks very much to me like what the 19th century Europeans called the Eastern question a complex bundling of geopolitical preoccupations that connected lots of different issues, but focused on the Middle East and on the access to the land routes to the great uh, European or Western European land and uh, world empires and so on. That's all coming alive again with the horrendous effects of the interventions in, in Syria, the a long aftermath of the second Iraq war, the, um, the standoff between Erdogan and al-Sisi in over Libya, the future of Libya. So these are all questions that seemed, you know, done away with. They seem to be uh, shut cases, closed cases, but uh, they're coming alive again. And I think that's very interesting, the way the 19th century is resurfacing or the preoccupations of the 19th century are resurfacing. Yes, yeah, so I wanted to come to a few of those echoes a bit later, but I just want to drill first into the events of 1848, or rather actually the participants. So I had it in my mind for the sake of the listeners to put each political group into into three categories and this was the case and i'm speaking very generally here of course uh this is the case across all the city states and countries during that year so in the first instance you have these conservative sort of reactionaries aristotypes landowners the second group are the liberals social democrats technocrat, Blairite, whatever you want to call it. And then third, you've got the radicals. And so these are, for want of a better word, Corbynistas. And I say that with the greatest respect to all three of those groups. So I've got it in my mind that all three of these groups are in each state or country and they're tussling with the challenges presented by that year. Yeah, I mean, that is a good summary. You know, we need names for these people. We, we have to find something to, to order the, the chaos. Uh, but the fact is, of course, that you know, conservatives were actually just a vast sort of ecosystem of very diverse political positions. And so, so was liberalism and so was radicalism. I mean, radical, nobody, well, people didn't call themselves radicals by and large. They, they found all sorts of other terms for themselves. Um, 
And so what we're looking at actually is, is not really a, a spectrum of clearly identifiable partisan positions of the sort we think of, to, you know, in the 20th century, going from left to right, you know, the hard left, communism, the hard left, various forms of social democracy, left liberalism, right liberalism, and then a, a variety of different kinds of conservatism. That didn't really exist. What you had was endless variations of political thinking and argument unfolding in different locations around, sometimes around charismatic and sage-like figures like Charles Fourier or the Comte de Saint-Simon or, um, you know, the, the German socialist Weitling, but, you know, or Karl Marx, who was not such a charismatic figure, but certainly very, an increasingly important one in the 1850s and 60s. Many, many voices, all competing with each other for attention, all trying to make it up as they as they go along and all in motion this is the other thing that's interesting about the people of the first half of the 19th century people don't say well i'm a, they don't when they reach the age of 21 say i'm a liberal and then just stay a liberal for the rest of their lives they they keep on evolving and this is a very striking thing and all kinds of people that we think of as liberals or as radicals are in fact moving they're in motion they're moving from the left to the right or from the right to the left for, for lack of a better term um and, you know, people are never, 10 years later, people are never where they were 10 years before. So th this is a period when a very swift evolutions, when people make long, I think of them really as long journeys through a kind of archipelago of political options with hundreds, hundreds, thousands, a bit like the Indonesian archipelago, the thousand islands, you know, they just move from island to island, picking up ideas here, picking up ideas there. Um, nobody, there are no big, powerful, catechetical textbooks that everybody in a particular party signs up to. There are no powerful political parties that can tell you what to think. People are making it up as they go along. And that's part of the excitement of that era. And also of 1848, which kind of, you know, is, is the moment when all this political biodiversity suddenly gains traction and becomes, you know, a way of handling a process of rapid change. And so it begins in... France and Northern Italy are both competing to be the first one to kick it off. Oh, and of course, Switzerland, shouldn't forget Switzerland in this. But it seems to go, you have revolution, then counter-revolution, and then re-revolution. Is that about right? Yes, it's got the, the revolutions have a curious and slightly sort of baffling um, chronological structure, though it's actually quite straightforward once you sort of commit it to, to memory. It has basically three phases, which is not too too difficult. Well, we should be able to manage that. Now, the first phase is the spring. Uh, everything just pops off. It's like everybody's, nobody knew it, but everybody was ready for this. Um, nobody was expecting it. And, um, and one of the interesting things about spring is that it becomes clear that this is not a revolution made by revolutionaries. Revolutionaries are made by the revolution. It's the other way around. And often the people we think of as the, as the revolutionaries in this, uh, are the people who inherit power when the revolutionary happens when the revolution happens, sorry. Um, those are the revolutionaries. They're not, they're, there are no plots and conspiracies going on here. Nobody's planned this in advance. There are a couple of small regional exceptions to this, I won't go into those, but by and large, the revolutionaries, the so-called revolutionaries are as surprised by the revolution as anybody else is. Um, and once that happens, there's this tremendous euphoria. And uh, it's, it's like in the Tahrir Square moment of the Arab Spring, everybody's in the square, they're all, you know, the school teachers are there, the artisans are there, the, art, the, the apprentices, the journeymen, the laborers, the, the wage laborers, the poorest, and, but also people with, with brushed top hats and nice jackets and ladies with uh, attractive dresses and be, women are waving, you know, flags from the windows. And it feels like the whole of society is on the move. 
And everybody who experiences this moment remembers it for the rest of their lives. It's a moment of, it's a flashbulb moment for everybody. And it makes everybody into contemporaries in a way which was not imaginable before this happened. So that's the spring. Then, unfortunately, just as after a wonderful party, sometimes um, a nasty morning follows with, with headaches and uh, nausea. So in the summer, it becomes clear. And the same thing happened in the Arab Spring, obviously. And if you look at what happens in the, to the Tahrir Square movement, um, the people realize actually they don't really agree on everything. They don't really agree about the next steps. And one could fill hours and hours of conversation about what they disagree about. They disagree about virtually everything one can imagine as a political question. But one fundamental thing they disagree about is the nature of the revolution. And that's one way of capturing all the other disagreements. People uh, who, uh, whom I think we could call radical because they want um, a deep social transformation and they want life to become better for the poorest and most vulnerable in society. People like that, um, on the one hand, think that the revolution is a process. It started in February or March, or wherever it takes off. It takes off at different times in different places, but it's, uh, it's a process that has to be deepened and, and pushed forward until the process of revolutionization is complete. But for more moderate heads, we might think of them as liberals, um, the revolution is an event. It's something that once it's happened, has to be contained in ropes of law. It, stable, stability has to be re-achieved. So you've got to, the idea of the liberals is the very last thing they want is just continuing turmoil. What they want is now the revolution has happened, thank everybody for everything they've done, thank you for all your efforts and for all your sacrifice. And we understand people have died and so on. Thank you for all of that. Now go home. We will take care of ourselves. Don't you worry your pretty little heads about this. We're going to make a constitution, then we'll summon a parliament and we'll get on with the busy big boy work, because uh, it is all men, of course, um, of, of drawing up laws and, you know, and create and, and making sure the press is free and that um, people are free from arbitrary arrest and all, all these sort of legal reforms that liberals love. That's not enough. For the people on the left they they say no but the revolution isn't over what about the the poor people what about the people who are who are the, the precarity of people who are living on the subsistence borderline who are very numerous in the cities of europe at this time so uh, that's the fundamental disagreement i would say and it, it causes deepening tension as the liberals in most places succeed in um securing the high ground of political power in one way or another. I mean, the ways in which they do this vary from place to place, and we don't have time to go into the detail. But by and large, the Liberals are quite successful in securing a, a position of advantage. And the left then become a kind of enraged opposition. They feel they've been locked out, they've been hoodwinked, the revolution has been hijacked, stolen from them. Um, and that's where the trouble starts. And by the summer, the left and the centre are openly at odds with each other. And you see armed conflict in the streets of Berlin, of Vienna, of, of Paris, and in other places between the sort of left and centre options for the revolution, between liberals and radicals. So that's when the, the, the worm turns, as it were, and um, things get difficult. And then finally, in the, in the autumn, two things happen. That was the summer. Now comes the autumn. In the autumn, two things happen. The counter-revolutions begin. So in Vienna, for example, the, the Habsburg army returns. It crushes a major uprising in Vienna and reasserts re royal Habsburg imperial power. Um, and so you have several of those in Berlin. The same thing happens. In um, other places, a second wave of revolutions kicks off, uh, as it were, in response to these counter-revolutions. And it's a different kind of revolution. It's more dominated by the left, but it's not the sort of insurrectionary, hard communist left 
represented by some of the most kind of conspiratorial insurrectionists on the on the left in the 1840s it's looking more and more like a kind of social democracy people want social goods social benefits they don't want to demolish private property they don't want to take away people's houses and beds and you know all this kind of thing they they but they do want some kind of safety net for the most vulnerable classes of society so it's the left is also evolving towards something more moderate and better organized they have very deep and very large associations and organizations and this goes on and they end up fighting i mean they in several places there are armed insurrections in the southwest of germany in particular armed insurrections and in, in Hungary at the same time, and the Hungarian inde pro-independence movement pulls away from Austria and fights during the, um, the, the sort of winter and spring and summer of 1849, until in the summer, finally, of the next year, 1849, these revolutions are finally put down, more or less put down. Um, they're crushed in the southwest of Germany by Prussian and other German army contingents. Um, the French go into the Republic of Rome, which had sprung up in the spring and put that down in the summer of 1849. Um, and the Russians and the Austrians and various other Croat and other groups helped to bring down the Hungarian revolution. So that brings a an end to the whole thing. So it's three phases, spring, euphoria, unanimity, summer, everybody starts to disagree and the squabbling starts, the autumn and winter, on the one hand, counter-revolution begins, and on the other hand, the second sort of revolution 2.0 kicks off and it's then put down in the summer of the following year oh, so well, it's a bit complicated but not that complicated no fantastically described actually and so eight, the way 1848 is often described is and you've written about this in the book is that it wasn't a success but i don't think that's necessarily the way you view 1848 or whether it's the right way that it should be viewed I don't think it is really. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, if we, if you hear about, if, if we observe a massive snowstorm um, in Canada or something, nobody asks, was the snowstorm a success or not? You know, or did it fail? <laughs> that would be pointless. Or was it, was a volcanic eruption a success or a failure? Nobody would, would ask that question. They would simply, you know, they would establish that it had taken place and then they would measure its effects. And it seems to me, of course, the objection to my analogy just now would be to say, well, that's absurd, that analogy, because a volcanic eruption is a natural event, whereas a, a, a revolution is a political event. And political events are driven by will and intention. And if the intention is A and the consequence is B, then you can say this was a failure. The, 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 the objective was not fulfilled. That means failure. But the problem with that is it presumes that a revolution has an, an intention. But of course, it didn't. The 1848, perhaps no revolution does, but certainly the 1848 revolutions were made up of tens of thousands of different intentions, which often cancelled each other out. There was very little in the way of how of norming and you know unanimity about what people wanted to achieve through the revolution, and so working that out was actually an extremely conflictual process. And so there is no um, single intention by which to measure the success or failure of revolution. What that means is that when we say the revolution failed. We often mean either that we're siding with those for whom it was a failure, which of course one can do. You could say, well, I'm with Louis Blanc. I think, I think the, French, the French Revolution of 1848 failed. Louis Blanc had to flee into exile. He wound up in, in London and so on. We could say, I, I, I'm with Louis Blanc on this. He's my, he's, the, he's my horse in the race, as it were. It didn't work out for him, so it's a failure. But of course, for other people, this revolution was a success. For, for Bismarck, for example, a conservative, 
this revolution is about the best thing that could possibly have happened throughout the rest of his life. I mean, he hated, of course, he burst into tears and so on at the thought of the of the terrible insult done to his king and all the rest of it. But apart leaving aside all the crocodile tears, for him, 1848 was a springboard into a remarkable career. And he never denied that throughout the rest of his life. He always said, in the time before 1848, a person like me could never have gone into public life. I didn't have the connections. I would never have been, have had the patience to sit in the civil service and be promoted year after year, this to this rank and then this rank and then this rank. I simply didn't have the patience for that. And he said, but 1848 launched me into public life. Um, from one day to the next in a way that would otherwise have been quite impossible. So for him, this revolution was definitely a success. And for many liberals, it was a success. If what you wanted was a constitution and parliamentary elections, that's what many of these countries get as a result of the revolutions. Piedmont in Northern Italy had no parliament and no constitution. After 1848, it has both. Prussia gets both. You know, um, so a lot of things change in 1848. It creates a new political culture. The Danes get a new constitution. They're radically transformed. It's a revolutionary transformation from an absolute monarchy to um, a, one of the most democratic political systems in the world at that time, much more democratic than Britain at the time. Um, Swiss, the Swiss nation state is created in 1848 through the creation of the new constitution, which is the consequence of the wars and uh, the war and the struggles of 1847. So, you know, 1848 really does remake the world in many of these countries. But, uh, and I think that, you know, to call it a failure is just simply, it, it's, just, it's just kind of beside the point. It, it's, it's, a, it's, one of the, it's the least interesting thing you can say, you can ask about this revolution is, did it succeed or fail? It's much more interesting to think about the revolution as in, in terms of its endless consequences, because really these revolutions were, they weren't like a kind of planned event which tried to establish something and then either did or didn't. What they were was they were they were like a collision chamber. You know that underground um, that underground tunnel where they fire you know subatomic particles at you know mind-boggling speeds and then ram them into each other to see what what happens to them. It's it's called the sound. I think it's sort of half of it's under under France and the other half's under Switzerland. It's an amazing thing. I've been there once and it's just the most incredible machinery. Well, it seems to me we should think of 1848 as the collision chamber at the heart of the 19th century. Everybody who was active or interested or doing things or wanted to do something was sucked into this, flew into it. They all banged into each other. They were bent out of shape. Sometimes two opposites, you know, cancelled each other out and antimatter, nothing was left but political antimatter. But others, you know, found new ideas, um, recombined their politics. Everybody was changed by 1848, including, for example, Karl Marx for whom 1848 is a deep lesson in how to recalibrate his political thinking and, and how to rebuild his political theory. Um, but the same happens to liberals, conservatives, um, and people on the left. They're all changed and reshaped by 1848. It's much better to think of the revolutions in that way. Well, I was thinking of, uh, to quote a revolution from the early 20th century, it was the freedom to achieve freedom. Yeah. The freedom to achieve freedom, that's interesting. Michael Collins said that. Michael Collins said that. Oh, yeah, okay. The freedom oh, oh, yes, he said that on the signing of the Anglo-Irish Agreement, the, the Anglo-Irish Treaty, which kept Ireland as a dominion state within the empire, so not fully, so it wasn't fully independent. Well, the, the difficulty, with, yeah, I mean, that's interesting that you mentioned Collins, because, of course, Collins was part Part of Collins's political project was the national, the, the, politi the politics of national self-realization. 
uh, and that's at the core of 1848. We haven't actually discussed that yet, but um, nationalism is one of the really deep themes of 1848, and, and it presses on 1848 in a way that's actually quite distorting because, you know, 1848 was experienced by contemporaries as a, as a European event, but it was later remembered as, a, as many different national events. The nation states, as it were, hoovered the 1848 revolutions into their own narratives. And you have a French story of the French 1848, a German story of, of the German 1848, the Italians do the same, the Hungarians do the same. To this day, Viktor Orban very often refers to 1848. And the streets of today's Budapest are full of names of those who fought and in some cases died uh, for Hungarian independence in 1848. Whether you want to call national unification freedom, as many contemporaries did, um, is another question. Um, but it certainly did, uh, 1848 did accelerate um, the process of nation making, nation building in Europe. There's no, no question of that about that. It also shaped the outcomes of these processes. I mean, the particular experience of 1848 helps us to explain why Germany winds up a very federal state, even to this day, whereas Italy, although it's a very diverse country, is actually a unitary state uh, with a single, um, you know, because it, when, when it was unified, basically what that meant was that the constitution of Piedmont was given to the whole of Italy. That didn't happen in Germany, but something much more complicated took place. And that's all as, as a, a, a result of how 1848 is experienced in those different countries. So 1848, in that sense, it helps to achieve national, or national, some form of national union, in that sense, I suppose you could say it's the freedom to achieve freedom. On the other hand, I think 1848, in some ways, by empowering the liberals, it delayed the, the, the arrival of democracy. And it was because the, the liberals were not Democrats. This is a very important point. The liberals didn't want to give the vote to everyone. They wanted to give the vote to all the sort of educated people. They wanted to give the vote to people like us, Oliver, people who are sensible, who take part in podcasts and chat with each other about <laughs> questions. Those are the people who are going to get the vote. They didn't want the great unwashed to have the vote as they saw it, right? That was their view. Uh, and you, it was only on the left that you found people ad adopting true democracy who said, no, we, we want to give the vote to everyone to everyone male, that is. I mean, very few people are arguing for women. And there's another way in which the freedom to achieve freedom doesn't quite work. Because although women organize and advocate very effectively and very impressively around 1848, they found newspapers, they write endless pamphlets and articles, and they argue their case very eloquently and often very movingly, they achieve almost nothing out of 1848. And of course, in the case of France, they have to wait until after the Second World War to get enfranchised in Britain until after the First World War. In most countries, it's a long, long wait before the, the extraordinary you know, negative privileges, the, neg the disabilities weighing on women are removed. Switzerland's even later, isn't it? Switzerland's even later, absolutely. So, you know, it depends which group one's looking at, you know, how, how much, how, much uh, how we appraise the effects of 1848. Well, one area I wanted to talk to you about, which I know has some personal interest to you, is that it's during 1848 that we're in the middle of the famine in Ireland. And as many probably already know, around a million die. Huge numbers migrate from Ireland to America and Australia and Britain. And so I wondered, is that, I know it's not traditionally lumped into 1848 as the year of revolution, but is that not a revolutionary act in itself to migrate from your home to a new country? In terms of an individual biography, it is. Um, I mean, the what was interesting, I think, the connection with, between revolution and emigration in the Irish case is interesting because 
one thing that the Australian press is interested in 1848 is the fact, I mean, the, the Sydney Morning Herald poses this question explicitly. Um, it's a paper that still exists today, uh, by the way, but it was, it was then the main, the most important paper in the colony of New South Wales. And it poses this question, once, once the Australians learn of what's been going on in February, which is not incidentally until sometime in June, I mean, the Australia is so far away that um, it takes, I think, about four months to, for information to get there. Um, but when finally the Australians do wake up to what's going on, and then, of course, they follow the news with tremendous interest. I mean, they're not Australians yet, but the people in New South Wales, the colonists, they follow these news with tremendous interest. And one question they ask themselves is, you know, why is Britain not having an 1848? Why is the mother country not experiencing an 1848? Why are things so quiet, you know, in the home country, as, as Britain still is for Australian colonists in, the, in, the, in the, that continent? And why have they not seen the bloodshed in Paris and elsewhere, Hungary and so on? And the answer that they produce is, well, the reason is that for some years now, the British have been systematically weeding out troublemakers, especially in Ireland, people they see as troublemakers, and exporting them, transporting them by force, expelling them, exiling them to the colonies, and in particular to New South Wales. And so they say, you know, that, that we're going to have to carry the, carry the baby as we're going to be left carrying the baby of, of people in revolution because we've all got all the troublemakers here. Of course, that doesn't happen in 1848 in, in Sydney or, in, or even in 1849. But a few years later, there is a, a major revolt on the um, gold fields of Victoria. Um, called the Eureka Stockade, which is something that nobody in the rest of the world knows or cares about at all, but which is taught to every Australian school child, and every, everybody in Australia knows the Eureka Stockade. It's like, you know, King Arthur and the Cakes. Or was it King Alfred? Sorry, King Alfred and the Cakes. You know, uh, the sort of thing people used to know, you know, about burning the cakes, or, or Washington's, you know, hatchet, or the cherry tree, or whatever. Well, those sorts of things. It's that kind of folkloric um, wisdom that you get at school. And um, what's interesting about the Eureka Stockade is that, again, according to the editors of the Sydney Morning Herald, it was led by, among other people, the personal secretary of Mazzini, the Italian insurrectionist who had been uh, present at the, in the Roman Republic and had been agitating for an Italian national union for some time by insurrectionary means. His secretary, a man called Raffaele Carboni, had wound up in Australia and helped to lead the miners during the Eureka Stockade uprising. And so did a man called Friedrich Wern, who was a former German radical who'd been on the barricades in Paris. So, you know, there are connections in far-flung far Australia with the revolutions of 1848, and they do have to do with immigration, but it's quite an indirect connection. Well, I certainly want to talk about Britain, actually, but as I mentioned at the start, there were ripple effects felt all around the world. We see French colonies impacted in the Caribbean in particular. There are... you quote a Chilean writer, so it's South America, the Pacific too. I wondered if you could talk about that. Absolutely. No, it's watched with fascination, partly because of the cascading effect. People can't believe that this is happening, moving from city to city to city. It's this foreshortening of events where the amount of new news material is so prodigious that it's impossible really to digest it in real time. And this is a sense that we find many people saying, you know, the, the events are happening too fast to actually make sense of them. And that, you know, grabs everyone's attention. As, as regards the French Empire, well, there the effects are very, very direct, because one of the first things that happens when the revolution breaks out is that the, the new government, the provisional government of the French Republic, now, newly become a republic because the king has run away, announces that it, it intends to form a commission to produce a decree abolishing slavery throughout the French Empire. 
And since slavery is the fundamental economic and social system underpinning production and, and social life and, and social reproduction in the uh, sugar colonies of the Caribbean, the French, I'm thinking here of Martinique and Guadeloupe, but also the island of Réunion, um, elsewhere, and also Senegal and Algeria, and you name it, this very far-flung world empire. In all of these places, the sudden abolition, the, the decision to abolish slavery is going to have very far-reaching effects. What happens, interestingly enough, in the, in the Caribbean is that while the commission starts to, it's formed and it starts to draw up a decree of abolition, and this decree is eventually delivered by packet boat, you know, to Martinique and Guadeloupe. By the time it arrives, the, the local enslaved people have already seized their own freedom. They don't wait for the decree. Once they know that this is in the offing, they rise up themselves and, um, and simply say, it's over. Finita la musica, c'est fini, right? Uh, so, and the, the authorities pretty quickly, after, after some fairly bloody skirmishes uh, and, uh, and tumults and, and violence on the islands, they have to concede, yes, it's over. We, we can no longer maintain the system. And at that point, the governor of Martinique, Rostolan, and his, his colleague on Guadeloupe both issue local emancipation orders in which they say there are no longer any slaves on these islands. So that is a very profound transformation. I mean, there's a very interesting, you know, literature about this transformation, which shows that the end of slavery did not mean the beginning of a full societal emancipation. On the contrary, people found ways of uh, limiting and curtailing the freedoms offered to the enslaved, the formerly enslaved. And so the improvement in their condition was actually far less dramatic than we might imagine. And this is a reminder of how sticky racial discrimination is. In fact, when I was writing this book, I was struck by those two particular categories, which stand out as particularly recalcitrant and difficult. One is racial discrimination, which is so sticky and gets so deeply implicated in all the structures of these European societies that it's very hard to, it's very hard to eradicate, even uh, for those people who actually want to do so. And gender discrimination, the inequality of the two genders, of two sexes, sexual inequality, is also a very sticky institution in both those areas, 1848 achieves much less than, than, than it might have. But nevertheless, the abolition is a major step forward. It's the brainchild of a man called Victor Scholcher, Victor who's now venerated like a saint on Martinique. And there are, there's a, a Lycée Scholcher, and there's Rue Scholcher, and Pont Scholcher, and all these different places named after him. And Franz Fanon and, um, and Amy Césaire, and so both went to the Lycée Scholcher. I mean, he's absolutely, he's a sort of presiding patron saint of the island. So that, that was a decision of, of great moment. And it, it is not without deep consequences, however limited they might have been in the shorter term. It's interesting to me that, and your book is entitled The Revolutionary Spring. And I was wondering, this is probably more of an anthropological or sociological question, which I don't know if you've looked into. But we've seen it, this phenomena recently, and I wondered what it is about the human psyche. I mean, recently, as I mentioned, Arab Spring, we've seen... Even more recently, Black Lives Matter movement, there's the Occupy movement. What is it about the human psyche that we're very prone to the domino effect that once one country or state or whatever chooses to go down a particular route, then everyone seems to want to go? It is extraordinary. And the, the, the cascading dynamic of these revolutions is one of the most mysterious and interesting things about them. I mean, it happens so fast that they, you can actually say the revolution is proliferating faster 
than information about it could possibly have done. So it, it proliferates faster than, you know, the news can, of, of these revolutions can have proliferated. So in some cases, I think we just have to speak of, of not so much of, uh, you know, we have to get away from diffusionist models. There's a tendency to think in terms of diffusion and waves. So you have a, an instability in Paris, it's like throwing a stone into a, uh, into a pond and then the ripples proliferate outwards concentrically across the surface. That's not really how the revolutions spread. They, um, they were cognate tumults. We have to think of them really, it's more like a handful of, you know, several hundred pebbles, you know, thrown into a, into a pond. And the, the ripples are proliferating from many different, many different centers, not just from one. And the reason for that is that, you know, it, it seems mysterious at first if we think of how, how can this be happening at the same time in France and in the Italian states and in Germany and in, you know, Spain also has a major revolutionary upheavals in 1848 they're very violently put down and everywhere else Hungary and, and Vienna and so on how can that be happening at the same time well it's not mysterious if we just recall that this is all Europe let's not fetishize these national names that we give to the different regions let's just think of this as a single unit of analysis with a you know in some ways a single society in it and that's Europe and Western Europe was like that in the sense that if you look at the press uh, which I did with you know with great interest in the last few weeks before the outbreak of these revolutions it's quite clear that the horizon of their awareness is absolutely European. The French press is full of news about what's happening in Palermo, what's happening in Switzerland, what's happening in Naples. There's a mildest speech by Alexis de Tocqueville to the Chamber of Deputies where he think, he stands up on the 29th of January 18, 1848 and he says, you know, he, he's astonished by the complacency of the, of the sort of authorities of the French monarchy. And he says, do you really think that this turbulence on our horizon you know, there's stuff going on in Italy and in Palermo and so on. Do you really think that that's going to stay on the horizon? Do you not see that it's coming to us and that it will soon be in our streets? Because if you do see that, why aren't you acting? Why aren't you doing something, enacting emergency measures to deal with this crisis? And they all just sort of, you know, yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> that's old Tocqueville again. Listen to him ranting on like an old Quaker. Um, but, you know, the fact is that, you know, he's absolutely right. It is a joined up European society. And these people have very similar languages of complaint and protest and very similar techniques of insurrection. If you look at how, how they build barricades everywhere or the language of the demands that they make on their governments, the language of the new constitutions. You know, they all want the same things. Constitution, freedom of the press, freedom of association, freedom from arbitrary arrest and so on and so forth. So we've mentioned Britain. So I just want to move on to that now. And you were talking about the theory that was doing the rounds in New South Wales, which is that the reason there was no trouble in Britain was because all the troublemakers had been shipped off to New South Wales. But I was talking to an historian about 1848, and he was saying that the reason there was no revolution was down to the Duke of Wellington. Now, just hear me out. So the Chartists, who were the representatives of the radicals in Britain, were intent on marching on Parliament to put, it, put forward their demands. And as they were crossing Westminster Bridge, they heard that the Duke of Wellington, who I am believing to be a huge reactionary by this stage, and he's there with his cannon. So the Chartists, such was their reverence for the Duke of Wellington, for all he had achieved, that they disbanded and returned home and just complained at home, but didn't actually take up any kind of arms, unlike their continental 
counterparts. Is there any truth to that? Well, in short, you know, that, that story is part of the part of the answer. But I mean, underlying that and sort of implied by it, actually, is um, is something that contemporaries observed about Britain. I mean, it's not so much what the British observed. I'll tell you, first of all, what, what, what contemporary Britain said. And it's that that became part also of British memory of 1848. What contemporaries said was, well, these continentals are all rising up because, you know, they've, 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 been, they've all been held down by these ghastly, you know, continental monarchical despotisms. But we here in Britain, free Englishmen, enjoy the liberties of Englishmen. Why would they want to rise up? Your Chartist is a very good fellow. He'd rather go home and have tea with his wife than set fire to somebody's house. And that's basically the line taken in the Tory press. We, we, don't have, we won't have a revolution because we don't need one. We've got, already got the bally old freedoms we want. And why would we want a revolt to have any more? And that was the line that my teachers took at school as well. They said in Sydney, you know, when I was growing up, because I grew up in Australia, they'd say, you know, Europe, Britain didn't have a revolution because they already had the freedoms and liberties they wanted. And I remember thinking, you know, it's a bit like those parents who say, well, our teenagers are never going to revolt against us. We're so liberal, we're so permissive, you know, and so on. But often it's those parents who end up having the, the worst trouble with their kids. Well, it's a, bit like, it's a bit like that in 1848. It's a beautiful myth and it makes people feel good to believe it. But in fact, that what made Britain different in 1848 were two things. One was empire. In that sense, the New South Welshmen were, were actually right. The British were able to keep the price of staple foods down by demolishing the, the, the sort of legal framework of imperial privilege. In other words, by allowing cheaper sugar to come in to the, uh, into, in, in the form of British imports, they were able to keep the price of sugar down. Grain, the grain price was already kept down by the reform of the Corn Laws, which had been done by Peel. That was a very good move. And Britain was able, through access to its, the, um, the, the products but also of its empire, but also um, through these manipulations of international markets, um, it was able to keep the price of staple goods down and, and reduce the friction, the frictions generated by social distress. That was one part of the answer. Um, but another part was simply that Britain was very robustly policed. And it had, you know, if you think about the that meeting on Kennington Common where the charters all turned up great numbers and so, well, so do 80,000 special constables. 80,000? 80, 80,000 with, with, with clubs and so on, ready to have a go. And, you know, there, there was a chap called um, Sibthorpe who said, you know, by gum, if, they, if, they, if, they, if, they, if they'd really tried it on, then they would have got a thwacking like no man ever received before. So the idea was that, you know, if, if necessary, you could mobilize a large part of your own society to support a count the counter-revolution, I mean, to, to, to prevent any further radicalization. And, you know, the, the measures taken against the Chartist movement were extremely robust. They always had been, involving tens of thousands of arrests and so on. So, and I'm taking this in part from Boyd Hilton's wonderful account of 19th century Britain, which makes the point that, you know, the Chartist movement didn't die of its own, as he puts it, it didn't, didn't die of its own inanition. It was pressed down by the strong arm of the state. And this is something that Europeans saw very clearly. One of the first things that Pr the Prussians do in Berlin is they send a fact-finding mission to Britain to work out how, how, are they, how are they being so good at policing? What is their secret? And they send this, this, this fact-finding group, travels in particular to Ireland, where they have the Irish constabulary, a kind of paramilitary constabulary, which is seen as an absolute model for counterinsurgency, peacetime counterinsurgency policing. And the, the, the Prussians pick up lots of great ideas and incorporate them into their own policing reforms back at home. So, you know, it's not about liberalism, it's about policing and about prices. So prices and policing. So it sounds like it's down to Robert Peel then, as he was responsible for the creation of the police and the corn laws. Oh, the irony. 
Robert Peel is one of the kind of magical stories of this of this uh, episode because of this, these revolutions. Because Robert Peel, of course, you know, highly controversial figure in Britain because of the way in which he broke with conservative, you know, um, orthodoxy and did all kinds of wacky. Uh, radical things, often in, in alliance with quite radical figures in his own, in, in the parliament, the British parliament and British society, such as repealing the Corn Laws. Um, and after 1848, he becomes, in a completely unexpected and, and rather odd way, he becomes a sort of totem for a sort of poster boy for for post-revolutionary reformers of the European states. So you have the people like Bravo Murillo, the, uh, a member of the cabinet of the Union Liberal, the Liberal Union in, France, in, in Spain, I mean, in the mid-1850s, standing up in front of the Cortes, the Spanish parliament, and saying, Yo soy un peilista, right? I am a peelite, right? It's an extraordinary thing. Peel's dead by now. Um, and, you know, so and men, you, if you, once you start looking for references to Peel in the in the, you know, for example, the Piedmontese parliamentary uh, protocols, you find Cavour singing paeans of praise to Peel. He's seen as someone who broke the yoke of the old politics and showed the world how to mix politics and new combinations. But he has a sort of reputation in Europe which bears no resemblance whatsoever to his rather patchy presence in British public memory. That's hilarious. I can I just add, though, there is one thing, just to come back, because I remember my again my teachers saying you know britain was so liberal and of course what that was a by making that claim they're also making that claim about the society we were hearing that in namely australian society we were the inheritors of a system so liberal it would never experience revolution right a, a system based on commerce and mercantile interests and um, free press and all this kind of thing but in fact britain did experience uh, an, a revolution in 1848 though in a rather unexpected location um, namely on the protectorate of the Ionian Islands, which was under British administration in 1848. And on the island of Kefalonia, there was quite a serious episode of unrest, uh, a major sort of rural uprising, which the, the British tackled with exemplary brutality. I mean, they, they treated it exactly as the Austrians treated Hungary. I mean, they hanged and flogged like there was no tomorrow. And uh, there were over 300 people who were publicly flogged, something that the islanders had never seen before. There are only 70,000 people on Kefalonia. Um, they they executed uh, 22, I think was the total, and, and various others were sort of shot in reprisals and so on by British troops. And the High Commissioner himself went around kicking down the doors of cottages and stuff, having a great time with the soldiers. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's not really about, as I say, said, it's not really about liberalism. It's about, you know, um, pricing or prices. It's about policing. Um, it's about the achievements of Peel. So those are three things that begin with P. And finally, when push comes to shove, it's about, you know, good old fashioned counterinsurgency violence, which is um, what they apply just as the Austrians do in Hungary and everywhere else. Well, we're coming to the end. I feel like we could talk a lot longer. It's been so much fun listening about it, but you mentioned we're at bookends. So here we are at the 175th anniversary. And I couldn't help but feel that with the 2008 financial crash and all the economic challenges that threw up, and I'm of course thinking democratic elections that created quite re revolutionary results like Trump and Brexit. Are we at the dawn of a new age of revolution? I know history doesn't repeat, it rhymes, of course, because I, I whilst reading, couldn't help but feel some kind of echo. 
Well, I, I couldn't help seeing echoes. I mean, I was in exactly the same position. I've, been, I've just been a state constantly reeling from one moment of deja vu to another for the last few years, actually. I mean, the one that really got me going was the, was the QAnon shaman, you know, marching around in the, in, in the, in the House of Representatives. The, the sort of invasion, the chamber invasion of the 6th of January was an extraordinary event, which was full of echoes of, of uh, 1848. And I thought part of it was the theatricality, the fact that these people are performing a kind of larger than life role, you know, freedom, constitution, man, you know, this kind of thing. And on the other hand, you know, serious insurrectionary intent, fury about a lost election, the repudiation of the whole electoral process, the repudiation of the chamber. These are the, the memories of 1840. It was thick with memories of 1848. At least for someone who's interested in 1848, you couldn't help thinking of it because, you know, on the 15th of May, 1848, um, a, a group of protesters broke in in a very similar fashion, broke into the chamber of deputies and said, you know, this chamber is going to, is going to be shut down. We're deposing it. We're, we're, we're creating a new government, a new radical government and so on and so forth. I mean, that was a protest from the left. And it, that, that was people on the left who were angry because the elections had not produced the outcome they wanted. And they were now saying, you know, universal suffrage is a lie. And that's exactly what people of the right were saying in January 18, uh, 2021. So it's very interesting that these events, of course, they're very different. And people, and I, I can easily imagine people might get very enraged if I suggested that there's a similarity between Trumpism and, you know, the followers of Louis Blanc, who was actually very, you know, moderate and thoughtful, quite deep intellect, thinking about the problems facing, you know, the precarious classes of mid 19th century Europe. I don't want to suggest there's any similarity between the, in that sense, between the content of the pop-up protests of now and the, the chamber invasion of the 15th of May, 1848. But the formal analogy, the formal similarity is, is really so obvious, it can scarcely be missed. And it's interesting to think about those formal similarities. Why are chambers, why is the, politic of the ch politics of the chamber and the politics of the street at odds in 1848 and at odds again now? You know, is part of the problem may be the different speeds of politics. The fact that, you know, the politics of a chamber is very slow and actually quite boring. But as we all know, parliaments are rather boring. You know, you, you visit one, you know, it's not people, most people are not desperate to go back for another visit once they've seen how it all works. And they're supposed to be boring. That's one of the good things about them. But the politics of mobs and rallies and street meetings and radical clubs is, is fast and exciting. And the two speeds can sometimes pull each other apart. They can sometimes tear politics in opposite directions. And exactly the same has happened in recent times. You know, you think about Trump getting up at three o'clock in the morning whenever he needs to, well, whenever he needs to, to, to powder his nose and then issuing his first tweet of the morning, you know, um, driving politics in, in ever tighter news cycles uh, at the speed of tweet, not at the speed of parliamentary uh, deliberations. So, I mean, the, that's just one example, but I mean, there are endless examples of, of parallels, which I think make it, um, you know, impose on us the, the obligation, in a sense, to think about why those rhymes are there. You know, are they really just, you know, the kind of narcissistic presentism of us that we can't, when we look in the past, we can only see ourselves, like, you know, Boris Johnson looking at Winston Churchill and seeing a reflection of Boris Johnson, which is what that book is all about, right? Boris Johnson and Winston Churchill are actually the same person, as this book makes clear. Um, is it just that, or is there really some, some underlying structural affinity between these two moments that we should be thinking about? And it seems to me that the latter is the case, and we do need to think about, you know, what what we are entering into and whether it in some ways resembles 
what we left before we had this, what now looks like a rather anomalous experience of modernity, and in particular the 20th century, with its, you know, exterminatory genocidal first half, at least in European history now, um, and its weird bipolar second half, where the continent was partitioned. You know, both those things now look quite odd. And we're moving back to a multipolar, you know, environment marked by, not by the absence of violence, but by dispersed forms of violence, which are, can be very deadly and very lethal and very terrifying, but are not the sort of massive state ultraviolence that you saw with Stalinism or with Nazism. So we're going back into a world which, which was sort of second nature to them, but feels rather unsettling to us. And perhaps in that, in, in that moment of transition, it can be, you know, engrossing and maybe even instructive to think about the predicaments of mid-19th century people. Well, that's a really great way to end it. Thank you, Christopher. I really enjoyed talking to you. And the book, Revolutionary Spring, listeners, I highly recommend it. Oliver, thank you very much. I enjoyed this tremendously. Thank you very much for listening. I found that chat with Christopher hugely enlightening there. Plenty more great content coming up. And please do tell everyone about the podcast and do rate and review if you can. You'll have my thanks eternally. Until then, thank you and good night.